Hello, church. My name is uh, Stephen Wetzel. Uh, yes, I, uh, I lead the, uh, the, the campus ministry at James Madison University. Amen. Along with my awesome girlfriend, uh, Amy Rosenquist. Yes. Amen. I'm honored and privileged to be able to deliver the, uh, the message uh, for today. Uh, so we've been studying as a church, uh, communal transformation and uh, the, the qualities of a healthy church in Acts 2. All right, so today we're going to be talking about worship. All right, and so the, the, the official title was, uh, was Joyful Worship, uh, as you can see here. All right, so that's what we're going to be talking about. But as we've been talking about all these uh, different qualities of a healthy church in Acts 2, it, it becomes clear that we're not uh, great at all of these all the time. Uh, we make a lot of mistakes. Uh, we, we, we mess up. Uh, and as humans, we're, we're rather mistake-prone. Right? Just, just in, in general in our lives. It's just how things work. Uh, if you don't believe me, and I don't really know why you wouldn't believe me. That's kind of obvious. But uh, you, you can go onto YouTube and just type in the word fail. And you will have a bunch of examples that prove that I am indeed right. And you will lose faith in humanity and have a few laughs along the way. It'll be great. Uh, but anyway, I think what's, what's interesting about that isn't so much that people make mistakes. Like we all kind of get that. But I think it's that people tend to make the same mistakes over and over again. And, and we see that sometimes in our own lives, and we, we kind of look at you know, the replay of our lives, and uh, we're like, oh man, like this mistake, this mistake, this mistake, I should have learned this by now. Yeah. But I think even what's, what's more interesting is that when you look at history, you see that different people in different eras often make the same mistakes. Mm-hmm. That there are just certain human things that happen and certain traps that we fall into that are repeated throughout the course of history. And you can see this in a number of different things. You can see this uh, in any number of situations like elections or politics or uh, just the politics of power and even economics like the 1929 stock market crash. A lot of similarities with the 2007 Great Recession. Uh, We just kind of make the same mistakes that lead to these terrible consequences as a society. But I think my favorite example of this kind of thing has to do with war. Uh, and, And if you've seen the movie The Princess Bride... Uh, yes. 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 Amen. Again, if you haven't seen that, go home. You have some homework to do. Watch that movie. It's fantastic. Uh, if you've seen The Princess Bride, you'll know what the two classic blunders are. One, don't get involved in a land war in Asia. And two, don't go against a Sicilian when death is on the line. Two big mistakes. I'm not going to talk about the Sicilian bit. Uh, but do not get involved in a land war in Asia. And I think really what he meant was don't get involved in a land war with Russia. All right? That never ends well. (laughs) Russia has been invaded three times since the year of 1700. All right? And each time, the same exact thing has happened. All right? Somebody comes in and they're like, sweet, Russia's weak. We're going to kill them. They have this huge army. They go in. They cross the rivers that border Russia. They're kicking butt. You know, they're taking names. They're they're, uh, taking towns. They're taking area. And then all of a sudden... Winter hits, everybody dies, and you have to retreat back to your homeland with your tail between your legs. And three times this has happened in history with the Swedes, with the French under Napoleon, and then Hitler has this great idea, and everyone's like, oh, this is amazing, what a great idea. And then the same thing happens, and they're like, oh, we had no clue this was happening. Like, all right, guys, if you just looked, you would see that winter is a big deal, all right? Uh, people die. Uh, but we make the same mistakes over and over, in the course of history. And we're going to look at a biblical example of this. Go ahead and turn over to Exodus. Come on, on, Stephen. 
And so in Exodus, we have the situation here. The Israelites are enslaved in Egypt. We all know this, the Bible story. There have been countless movies that have been made about the Exodus, about Moses, uh, and various musical numbers uh, having to do with this. Uh, But God has a plan in this dire situation, all right? He's heard the cries of the Israelites from Egypt, and he tells Moses, I have come to rescue your people and bring them into a land flowing with milk and honey. And, you know, the question is, okay, cool, this mysterious guy that I haven't seen before. What's the catch? And God's like, honestly, it's pretty simple. Just, you know, I don't know, when we're there or on the way, just don't, like, betray me and turn your back on me and, like, worship other gods who haven't done anything for you or anyone ever. Just, like, simple stuff. Just simple stuff. And it's like, okay, cool, 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 cool. And that's, that's not, like, what's said, but that is kind of the unsaid expectation in a situation like that. You know, like, don't bite the hand that feeds you. Don't bite the hand that leads you out of slavery uh, and into freedom. Pretty, pretty good rule of thumb. Uh, and so... Moses is super scared and secure, and eventually he gets on board with this plan. Uh, and one would imagine, cool, seems simple enough. Like, if God can pull this off, like, no one's ever going to question him ever again. Guess what? Not simple enough. All right? Uh, God does all he sets out to do. Uh, he, uh, with a series of escalating plagues, we don't know how the story goes, gets Pharaoh to let the people go. They're pursued uh, to the Red Sea. God splits the Red Sea. He's like, cool, we're all saved. And everything is going great. And we'll be here in Exodus 15, verse 1. Come on. Exodus 15, 1. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord, right after the Lord has rescued them at the Red Sea. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. And then skip over to verse 18. The Lord will reign forever and ever. And so God's plan is working out great here. All right. Because the plan was, all right, I'm going to rescue you so you'll be free to worship me. All right. The one true God. And then you spread my light to the nations of the world. That's the plan. It's going great at this point. All right. The Lord reign forever and ever. They're like, this is our God. This is our Lord. We're sticking to him forever and ever and things are going amazing and then you just skip down literally like less than five verses in verse 22 and things go wrong then moses led israel from the red sea and they went into the desert of shur for three days they traveled in the desert without finding water when they came to mara they could not drink its water because it was bitter that is why the place is called mara so the people grumbled against moses saying what are we to drink and then the Lord provides water, and then they don't have any food. And then they're like, ah, we should have stayed in Egypt. We had food there. What are you doing? And Moses is like, ah, all right, like, we'll, we'll, get some, we'll get some food, all right? Just chill out and just stick to the plan. It's going to be okay. And they're like, all right, cool, cool, cool. We have, we have that. And then they, they go and they run out of water again. They're like, ah, no water. Ah, why is God doing this to us? Why is he so mean to us? And they, you know, this all culminates in Exodus 32 when they go and they make an actual idol to worship instead of God. And like immediately this plan breaks down. Immediately this grand plan that no, you know, w- w- you would think couldn't fail, fails. 
All right, it starts off this pattern that the, 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 the people of God will repeat for centuries and centuries and centuries thereafter. There's this wavering between worship and unfaithfulness. Exalting God, grumbling. God is amazing. God, why is God doing this to us? And this continues even past when Israel is exiled for their unfaithfulness. You know, Babylon comes in, the Persians come in, they take everyone out as punishment for their unfaithfulness. And then, you know, they're brought back in. But the same pattern continues. Go ahead and turn over to Matthew 15. Matthew 15. Here we have the Pharisees. These are, you know, quote, the people of God at this point. These are the Jews, the chosen people of God. And they are their religious leaders. And, and here we have these Pharisees in verse 1. Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. And Jesus replied, And why do you break the command of God for the sake of tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might have author, uh, otherwise have received from me is a, is a gift devoted to God, he is not to honor his father with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. And so Jesus here, you know, talking to people who are making the same mistake. There's a problem with their worship. And, and, and you know, the, the Pharisees, they at least stuck to the one true God. They at least gave him lip service. But at the end of the day, their worship was human focused. At the end of the day, their worship fell short. Really, they were just worshiping themselves because they were worshiping their human traditions. They were worshiping how people looked at them, wanting to appear religious. And Jesus says, this has the appearance of worship, but your hearts are far from me and everything you're doing is in vain. They're really only concerned with how they look in other people's eyes. And I think our worship can fall into, into both of these camps here very easily. And I'm sure some of us have even come into this, quote, worship service Falling into one of these mindsets, falling in, uh, falling in some way uh, in how we worship God, falling short. And I think really the, the, these two examples are, are, are symptoms of the same problem, uh, is that it's not really focused on God in either case. And I think we can come in here and be focused on other things. And maybe we're here not for the right reasons. We're here for people. You know, we're here for their expectations were like, if we're not here, someone's going to ask questions. It's going to be weird. It's just easier to come to church. Uh, you know, and you, or you come in and something else is your God right now. Whether it's your job or your school or your kids and their success or your social life and how people view you, how many friends you have, the type of friends that you have, or your significant other or, or just the, the wanting of a significant other or a spouse that that's what you've been worshiping this week. And we come in, and sometimes we're not even really worshiping at all. Yeah. And we come in, and either our worship isn't of God or it's not pleasing to God. And I think either here or just the story of our lives in general, 
we have a problem either way. And it's a very human problem. And if history is any indicator, we can all and probably have at some point fallen short of worship. This is the mistake made by our forefathers, our ancestors, the mistake that we continue to make now. And I, I know for me that way too often uh, I, that can be the case for me. I think especially before I was a disciple, I worshiped daily at the altar of school. That was my God. I, I, I worshiped daily at the altar of what people thought of me. I didn't even realize that I was like, Psh, I don't care what people think about me. But did I share my faith with them? No, I'm super scared of them. And so I like played it cool. I was like, ah, whatever, people don't influence me. But at the end of the day, I was too much of a coward because of what I thought about them to make a, uh, an appeal to them about Christ. And that got between me and God, and it kept me from his word. I was much more willing to sacrifice God for school and God for my reputation than I was the other way around. I did not sacrifice school for God. I sacrificed God for school. And even now, I think I can, I can give in to going after comfort rather than following God. And, and settle for kind of righteous and, you know, this looks righteous or not as righteous as I know I could be. You know, and be like, ah, I could go and share my faith, but shh, ah, I need to do some lesson prep right now. That's good. That's good. But um, have I shared my faith all day? No, I've just been doing lesson prep. But couldn't you have done that at, you know, your lunch break or any other time during the day? Worshiping my own comfort. And I think so often I come in here and my mind is on, other th- on things other than God. And sometimes those things seem like good things. Uh, and uh, I come in, my mind is distracted by things like, the order of service, you know, or uh, who's going up next for singing? What song am I leading next? And, and oftentimes, even as, you know, I'm part of the worship team, I don't come in here worshipful. And that was really convicting, realizing, writing this lesson. It's like, man, I'm like supposed to be leading people in worship, but so often I'm just focused on the order of service and what's happening rather than on God. And I'm focused on how can things go right so I don't look bad? Or how can I sing this song well so I don't look bad instead of, worshiping the Lord in all of that. And I think even before I was on the worship team, it was re- really easy to come in here unfocused. Really easy to come in here and just be like, yeah, I'm here. And you know, like, I, I guess I'm thinking about God, but I wasn't like in reverent awe of these moments. You know, and I, I would catch myself thinking about what I'm doing later in service or later after service while things were going on. Uh, and I, I can sing the songs, you know, because I've been around for a while and just kind of muscle memory. And I'm singing the songs, but I'm not really worshiping with them. The words are coming out of my mouth, but the meaning isn't penetrating my heart. And it's just worship in vain. And it's not real worship. And there's something missing when we do this. Something we're forgetting. Something's not right. And the question is, what is that thing? What are we missing? And we've just talked about a bunch of bad examples and we kind of you know, be, be terrible if the sermon ended here. It's like, oh, wow, we're all terrible. We all screw up. Think about that for a week. See you next time. Uh, we'd be really discouraged. But luckily, the Bible is a book of answers, not just a book of problems. And uh, we're going to look at some of those answers. Turn over to Colossians. A funny thing, kind of, is that after Jesus came, turns out people are still pretty messed up. After uh, Jesus came, uh, people still make mistakes. Uh, And we've seen this, that these mistakes happen even in the New Testament, even after Jesus was died and raised, and two disciples 
in the New Testament. And we're, that was true for the Colossians. And we're going we're gonna to look here. and We can tell from the book of Colossians that the church in Colossae had some issues. All right? Namely, they had started to look to other things to fill them up. To save them and to bring them closer to God. And from what we know, kind of historically and archaeologically, uh, Colossae was a city that was heavily influenced by Greek philosophical ideas. All right, so much so that even the local Jewish populations started to take in some of these Greek philosophies and incorporate them in their worship of God. And by reading the book of Colossians, uh, it, it becomes pretty clear that this was happening to the church there as well, that they were beginning to take some of these ideas and add them to their worship to, quote, you know, fill in the gaps of what was missing to get them from, you know, where Jesus got them to God. And they're like, ah, you know, Jesus, he got us a certain way, but we also need this other thing. We also need this and this idea and this idea. And in our great learning, we'll, we'll get to God. Jesus is a good start, but we need some other stuff as well. Essentially worshiping other philosophies and other ideas instead of Christ. And again, something was missing. And they were falling into a similar trap that, that we do. A similar trap that the Israelites had. A, certain, a similar trap to what the Pharisees fell into. When we have other things as our God. Or think that God isn't enough for us. You know, it's like, ah, Jesus is great and that's kind of fulfilling and that's kind of joyful. But to supplement that, I need my career. To supplement that, I need my kids to get into a great school. To supplement that, I need to do great in school. Jesus plus this other thing will be enough for me. I need a bunch of friends, or I need to be well-liked, or I need a certain type of friends, a certain, a certain type of social interaction. Or I need a boyfriend, I need a girlfriend, I need, I need a wife, I need a husband. Then I'll be fulfilled. Wow. Christ plus this other thing will be enough. Wow. And this is what Paul calls... In Colossians 2.8, hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. There's all this other stuff that we think we need or that we, we focus on. It's only really important because the world tells us that it is. It's only important because we've bought into these lies about what it really looks like to be successful, what it really looks like to be happy. So you need a successful career. You need to do well in school. You need a significant other. You need these friends. Then you'll be happy. And we buy into it. And it chips away at the importance of Jesus in our mind. And that's what Paul's dealing with here. A group of people that had Jesus, but they were like, ah, we also need this other stuff. And Paul goes in and, and clearly there's an issue with how the Colossians are worshiping. You know, either together as a group or in their lives in general. Just how their lives reflected worship. He could have easily rushed in and said, this is wrong, that's wrong, do this, don't do that, change this, tweak this, and you'll be good. Put a band-aid on that, go for it, run the race. And I think really sometimes we like to dwell there in our spiritual lives and we're like, okay, this is what happened with my week, what do I need to do better? Or in our, in our discipling of others, we're like, okay, you did this, you did this, obviously that's not right, so instead, do this. And we're just like, all right, we want to skip to... The point where it's like, what do I do? Because that's easy. Because it doesn't dig into our hearts. I'm like, I'd rather do something than think about something. Or feel something. Especially as a guy. I'm just like, I would just rather not see what's in there. Because every time I do, it's just a little scary and a little ugly. Uh, So how about we just don't? 
But Paul doesn't start there. He doesn't, even, he doesn't even mention the things that they're doing wrong or the ways they can improve. And he gets there, but this is where he starts. In Colossians 1, verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints, the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven, and that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who was a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience and joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so Paul starts out here, uh, not with direction, but with a hope and a reminder. He, he, He reminds them, you have the gospel. And it was powerful among you and it's powerful everywhere it is preached. And we pray that you can live a life worthy of the Lord and how? With knowledge of his will through all spiritual understanding. To which you kind of imagine, knowing, knowing all the context, that the Colossians would be like, okay, yeah, 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 Paul, we, we got it. We already have that. We know the gospel. We have understanding of God's will. We understand God's, God's intention for us. Okay, what do we need to do? We already have this. That, so thank you, but move on. To which, you know, Paul might rhetorically respond like, no, 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 no. You don't get it. And that's the problem. Because if you did, none of this would be happening. If you actually did get it. And he launches into this amazing summary of the gospel. And continue with me in verse 15. Talking about Jesus here. He is the image, Jesus, of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And uh, Theron, last week, if you don't know who Theron is, it's Charlie, but it's Theron now. But Theron, Theron referenced this passage last week during communion. Uh, and he, he talked about how we glance over passages like this. And I think that is so true just looking at my life. I think when I like read Colossians, I'm like, all right, yeah, 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 all right, where do we get to the point? But miss that this is the point. <laughs> And I think we just kind of, I just kind of read this and I'm like, cool, got it, got it, got it, got it. But I'm, I'm literally falling into the same trap that the Colossians fell into. Right. Let's, let's reread this passage 
and really try to wrap our minds about what he's saying about Jesus. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. Everything you could ever imagine was created by, for, and through Jesus. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Without him, we'd be toast. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. The first for new life. So that in everything he might have the supremacy. He's over everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Everything that was God was Jesus. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior. And that sentence right there, in light of all of that, is terrifying. That this being who controls everything, who made everything, whom without everything would fall apart, who has authority, perfect authority over everything, we had trespassed against him. What a frightful and terrible position to be in. We've trespassed against God. Against the supreme God who holds the world in his grip like a baby bird. Who at the snap of his fingers, at like a mere thought, could like destroy everything that you know and love, including yourself. This is who we cross because of our evil behavior. And that is terrifying. Luckily, it doesn't end there. Verse 22. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death. This perfect being's death to present you, you enemy of God, holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel you have heard. And that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. And when the Colossians might be thinking, you know, when we might be thinking like, yeah, we got the gospel, we got it. No, he's like, no, no, no. This is the gospel you have heard. And you have forgotten it. This is the gospel which had power among you when you first understood it. This is the gospel that has fallen by the wayside with the pursuit of all your other philosophies of all your other needs and the things that you feel like come before God or that you need in addition to God. This is the gospel. And you've forgotten it. The real problem isn't that we don't worship correctly, all right? Or that we're not focused here, that, you know, our our lives don't reflect that. That's a problem. The real problem is, is that we forget this. For us, it's just... Head knowledge. And if we don't get this in all of its power, 
we're going to make these mistakes again and again and again. What was the issue with the Israelites? They forgot immediately what God had done for them. They forgot that they were slaves and that Jesus had rescued them from slavery in dramatic fashion. They're like, ah, we don't have any water. They forgot the power of that. The same with the Pharisees. The same for us. We forget this. And our worship fails. We become focused on us. And I think what's amazing is that the Colossians had already heard this. And they knew of this at one point. You know, this, Paul said this, this gospel had power among you when you first understood it. They had forgotten. And that's precisely when we get into trouble. When the gospel becomes head knowledge for us. And it doesn't penetrate to our hearts. I grew up going to church. All right. In a church that preached this. And I knew Jesus died for my sins. I knew Jesus loved me. I knew I was a sinner. None of it mean, meant anything for me. Yeah. It was just head knowledge. And I knew it, but it had no power for me. And it took me a long time to become a disciple, knowing full well the truth, knowing exactly where I stood before God, because I didn't get it. And I think even now, I, I, I can't, you know, in that process and even now, I need godly men to bring me back to this message. I need people like Paul to remind me of this. Like, my, like real Paul is in my life to remind me of this, to bring me back to this message because it so easily falls by the wayside. It so easily evacuates our hearts and it makes its home in our head. We're like, yeah, 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 of course, of course, of course. Get to the point. What do I need to do? No, this is the point. And that's what's amazing. Everything changes when we really see this. All of our problems shrink. All these things we think we need shrink in comparison to this. All these other things that we worship, we don't need them anymore. When we see this, we worship like the Israelites did initially. Like, the Lord is my God forever and ever, and I will never abandon him. But we need to continue to remember this. This is the key to worship. And I think for so many, worship is just an obligation uh, to like appease God or the people around us. Like that's not the message of the cross. Every other religion has, has this idea where it's you worship, get on God's good side and bad things won't happen to you. All right. If you do these things first, if you do it to appease God, then God won't be angry with you. And I think that's how we come in here sometimes. Wow is that we're here to appease God. We're here to appease other people. We're here because like, I should be here so that I can be saved for another week. All right, I should be here and do my disciple duties so that I can be saved you know, for this month. But we have a God who rescued us by the price of his own son to let us live for something greater, something totally fulfilling, and have eternal life when we were doing everything we could to oppose him. That's a different kind of worship. That should drive us to worship out of thanks. Yeah. And, and Paul talks about what this should look like, but only after the Colossians get it. Only after the Colossians understood that gratitude. And go over to Colossians 3. And this is where Paul puts it all on the line here. And he's like, okay, now that we have that under control, now we'll tell you what to do. Right. Now you'll see what to do. This will come naturally to you wow. if you understand this. Since you have been raised, this is uh, Colossians 3, verse 1. Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts and minds on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, 
not on earthly things, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you will appear with him in glory. And again, he starts out, think this way. Don't do these things. Set your heart on things above. And he goes on, he says, just put to death your sinful nature. All these things, they're worthless in comparison. If you're holding on to something in your life that's keeping you from God, get rid of it. It's pointless. It's not going to save you. It's destroying your life. It's destroying your worship. If you haven't made the decision to become a disciple, if you're on the cusp and something's holding you back, what are you waiting for? There's no point. This is so much more worthwhile than anything we could ever get from the world. And he goes out and he says in verse 12, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, instead of doing these things, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. This is how you should live. Now, in light of this, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body, you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another together with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And all of this is just based upon the gift God has given us, the, the, the call to live our lives in worship and to sing songs based on giving thanks. Worship is just responding to this. Worship comes after we get this. And I think when we don't get this, we worship like everybody else. And we do the bare minimum just to get by, just to appease God, to keep him on our good side. We compartmentalize and we put our disciple hat on sometimes. Then we, when we go to class, we're like, all right, different hat, student hat. When we go into our work, we're like, all right, I'm not a disciple right now. I just got to get my job done. All right. And then I'll, I'll share my faith later when the time, when the time comes. Uh, it, we, we take it off when we're at home, you know, when we're at work in different situations. Our whole life doesn't worship God. We, we come in here. We're not here to give thanks to God. We're here for other reasons. This is, this is what I do. You know, people, people get on my case if I didn't show up. Or maybe it's just a habit. I think this is what it is for me. You just show up and you're not really focused on God, but this is just what you do. And we show up to church because theologically we know it's the right thing to do. And we can like rattle off scriptures about why it's my conviction, but we're not thankful when we show up here. We're like, ah, Hebrews 10, you know, like, uh, do not give up meeting together. And you, you can rattle that off and you're so proud of your convictions, but are you here to worship? Or are you just here to appease God and live out scripture because it will save you? If we're not here because we're so eternally grateful for God and the mind-bending love he's shown us, then this is just a human tradition. This gathering right here is just a tradition of men to keep us saved for another week. And if that's the case, we are nothing but Pharisees. If we're here not to give thanks to God, this is a tradition. And Jesus would tell us, these people honor me with their lips but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain, and their teachings are but rules taught by men.
And if our lives are an act of worship, not to God, but to some other idol in our lives, like school, work, or this significant other in your mind, we're just like the Israelites, wandering away from God, worshiping other things. And I don't have time to get into it, but I was doing some reading, and that's always dangerous, uh, about the beliefs of the early church. And the, the, the early Christians just got things at a level of intensity that we really struggle to get, because suffering was right there in front of them. If you were a Christian, you could die. That was a real possibility. And they were intense because of that. Their convictions were intense because of it. But reading, reading these things, and I, I don't have time to get into the quotes that I have, but you get the sense that they were in awe of these times that they had together to worship. And they knew that what set them apart from the pagans the people worshiping Zeus and these other gods was the fact that their entire lives were worship. That they didn't just go to this temple at this certain time of the day and say, okay, worship, worship Zeus. I'm a P, like he's a P's now. I'm good. I can live however I want now. They knew that their lives were acts of worship. And it set them apart from everyone else. That should set us apart from everyone else. But when they came together, there was a power in that. There was a power that everyone around them, and they saw it, had been touched by this grace, had been touched by this power. Every, every person here was a testament to God's love. And that's something we don't understand. They lived out Romans 12, and we'll close out here. I'm sorry we're, we're going a bit long here. Romans 12. They lived this out a lot easier than we did. Romans 12.1. And so in light of all this, and if Aaron could get the slide, the title really, really isn't joyful worship, it's grateful wow. worship. Let's go. Our worship will be joyful if we are grateful. Romans 12.1, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, it starts there, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. And this is our charge, to offer ourselves, our entire lives, as living sacrifices to God. Not because we have to, but because, because God did it for us first. Yeah. And offered his body for us. And I think the amazing thing is that in the Old Testament, if you wanted to sacrifice an animal for your sins, it had to be blameless. It had to be without defect. And it's crazy, because without Jesus, we, are, we have defects galore. We have blemishes all over the place. Without Jesus, we couldn't even live this out. Without Jesus, it doesn't matter how holy we live our lives, how amazing we live it out. It doesn't matter. It's not a sacrifice worthy of God because we're not holy and blameless. You could live your whole life from this point on, the greatest person imaginable. You are blemished. But with Jesus, this actually works. With Jesus, we can actually put ourselves as a sacrifice that's pleasing to God because we are presented holy and blameless. And, and I just think about how, how amazing this will all be if we live this out in gratitude. If we make it a point this week in our quiet times to convince ourselves of this grace, to really get the power of it, not just at a head level, but at a heart level. That takes time. Be prepared for that. Sometimes our quiet times can be a little longer, not just a checkbox to, you know, do disciple things, but doing it out of gratitude. And imagine how amazing this worship will be if we come in here actually singing in gratitude, actually connecting in gratitude, looking around and seeing everybody here as a living reminder of God's love and the power of his grace. That everyone here who is a disciple, who has repented, been baptized, 
is a testament to God's grace and a symbol of that power. How excited should we be to meet with one another? The power in this room, if we're contending as a unit, is incalculable, is immeasurable. It's amazing. And this is what we have to do, but none of it means anything if we try and skip to the end. We have to be grateful. Let's, as we go to this, this last song, let's worship in gratitude. Focus on the words. Live this out right now in light of what God has done for us. And thank you guys so much. Come on. We can all stand and we'll sing together. Our God, he is alive.